God of uh, meticulous planning. In our study of Luke, we are right where the Lord's Supper uh, is being observed. And uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're not going to get all of the facts about the Lord's Supper this morning because we want to have time to actually partake of, of the Lord's Supper. Uh, so uh, next week we will continue in Luke and we'll look at some more, uh, some, some more information that I think is really fascinating. So, uh, Lord, thank you for being with us this morning. We pray that you, uh, you glorify yourself this morning. <clears throat> uh, we are imperfect vessels, Lord, and you know that. But you have a perfect message and that you have a perfect messenger, uh, the Holy Spirit. So we are depending upon him, Lord, to deliver your message today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a few weeks ago, our study in Luke brought us to the time in history when Jesus was gathered with his apostles on Mount Olivet. And what led to that gathering, we won't spend a lot of time on this because we've studied this in detail the last few weeks. What took him to the Mount of Olivet with his apostles at this particular time, uh, instead of him going to Bethany, uh, like he normally did, is he realized that the Sanhedrin had already met and that they wanted to kill him. And so there was probably more of a kidnapping plot going on than a murder plot because they were in fear a little bit of a rebellion from the people. So in the last couple of nights, we don't know for sure how many nights as, as they were in that uh, celebrating uh, the Passover time, he uh, escaped with his apostles, so to speak, to the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives, it was a very densely populated, uh, was very densely populated with vegetation, olive trees, shrubs, bushes. <clears throat> it was not really a friendly place necessarily, but you could easily gather with people and not necessarily uh, be seen or observed. So that's what they had decided to do. He also, we also realized that the Sanhedrin, when they were meeting, uh, it was a, a, a very important meeting to them, but they recognized they had a problem, and that was they didn't know where Jesus and his apostles were meeting. And so they had, they had this dilemma. How do we get information about where to kidnap, so to speak, or steal Jesus away? And uh, much surprise to the Sanhedrin, and some scholars believe that even when they were in the midst of the meeting deciding what to do, Judas came bursting in, which was uh, not appropriate at all, and said, I will turn him over to you. And so they were pretty pleased with that. They never thought one of the twelve would desert Jesus, but he did. He went to them and he said, for about three months' wages and silver, I'll be glad to turn him over to you. So the stage was set. Sanhedrin had their man, and as the time of the Passover meal approached, Jesus, as we studied, quietly called Peter and John over to him, and he said, I want you to go into Beth, I'm sorry, into Jerusalem right now, and I want you to uh, look for a man that's carrying a, 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 a vase of water, so to speak, and he knows everything that he's supposed to do for you, and you're, you just follow him, and he's going to take you to an upper room. And that happened exactly as Jesus predicted that it would happen. And the reason it was so clandestine is because Jesus knew he had a spy in the midst. And so he asked these two apostles, didn't tell the other apostles what was going on. You two go. And by the time they gathered everything they needed to celebrate the Passover, they would not, probably not have had time to go back up to the Mount of Olives. So... Jesus was very uh, very wise in this. <clears throat> you go prepare and we'll meet you there. <clears throat> so as they're walking down, 
from the Mount of Olives, they go into the upper room. And so we, we looked at that in this 22nd chapter of Luke last week. And these were the events that, was, uh, that, that were taking place. But uh, I want to provide a little bit of context. And for some of you, every time I say that, you, you say there's no such thing as a little bit of context with you. And I know that. And I'm sorry, but we'll hurry. I just find these things so interesting because they're not spelled out necessarily in the Scriptures, but you can easily figure them out if you know how. I don't know how to do that, so I read. A bit of context first. Though, Luke was writing what you are reading right now, if you're reading the chapter uh, on your Scripture sheet, about 30 years after the event. So Luke was not necessarily chronicling everything that went on, <clears throat> and he didn't get it out for the latest breaking news. So about 30 years after this event, Luke began to write what he recalled. Now, it was 30 years after the event, and it was 10 years after Paul had written to the Corinthians. So the reason this is relevant to us is because in the 10th, 11th chapter of Corinthians, which Rich is going to read from a little bit this morning, that is where Paul lays everything out as, to far, as far as what the Lord's Supper actually means. So Luke, we look at the, this scant account of uh, the, the, the upper room, and we think, well, Luke only devoted about six or seven, maybe eight verses to it. Why? Because it was unnecessary. Everyone already knew. The Jews that had received Christ had not practiced the Passover for 30 years. They had broken away from that. And in an effort to answer questions that the Corinthians had of Paul, Paul wrote the most complete dissertation, so to speak, of what the Lord's Supper actually meant. So it helps us understand why we don't see much in Luke uh, and the other Gospels, uh, there, there's some more things in there, but not a whole lot. Then there's a bit more context. Luke did not write a historical account that evening. This would have served no real purpose. He wrote it as more like we might write a term paper. Here's your topic. Here's your theme. Expound on this. Pull information in. So why is that important? Is because it's difficult if you're trying to match when things happened and you read the four Gospels, you will not find the same order. But they weren't writing as historians. They were writing as men who were there that were moved by the Holy Spirit, that in an appropriate, at the appropriate time, they wrote down the events, and it became the canon, scriptures. So they did not write um, chronologically necessary, <clears throat> necessarily. They wrote thematically. And one final point on that is the Passover meal lasted for many hours. Hours and hours. So can you imagine trying to chronicle everything that is being said by 12 men and a rabbi over the course of three or four hours? It's just not practical. That will come in handy a little bit later as we work through this. So a little more context. In today's Western culture, very little value is placed upon gathering around a table and truly enjoying each other by sharing a meal. We see that, right? In reality, in our culture, very few people really gather for a meal at all anymore. That's another topic for another time. 
But can you see the advantage and the importance of these 12 men and their rabbi meeting for hours? What do you think happened during those hours? I can tell you this, that when they were still on the Mount of Olives, you can find it in John, there was what they call the Olivet Discourse. Jesus all of a sudden just began teaching and teaching and teaching. And it was all deep things about the fact that he was going away and that he was going to be crucified. But he spoke in code to some degree. The point is, these 12 men and the rabbi had gathered for their third Passover. And it was an event. They went through no drive throughs They didn't hurry home and throw something into the microwave. And you know I'm being facetious with this, but you understand. It was designed to take time. It was also an event that was filled with ceremony and tradition. They did this through honoring the covenant of the law. So the way they fulfilled the ceremony, the way they, they, they complied, or the way the traditions were built is because of the law that Moses gave, I'm sorry, that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai, and in turn, Moses gave to Israel, who would be Israel. And within that law were the laws of how to celebrate Passover that they had just experienced in Egypt. So it was all laid out. And what was the purpose of that? Because it all predicted or it was a prophecy to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So all of this celebration and some of the tradition was for that sake, was for that sake altogether. We see that the heart of the celebration was to pay tribute to God for sparing their firstborn from death in Egypt. And we know there was nothing special about the lamb's blood they put on the doorpost. It was just lamb's blood. But it was a substitute. For whose blood? Not Christ's. Theirs. Theirs. Blood is demanded when you sin. A payment of blood is demanded. So they put the lamb's blood on the posts and the lintel. And it was a substitute. But that isn't where the first substitute came from. The first substitute, the, fu- the first substitutionary, substitutionary, is that right? Thank you, substitutionary. Too many S's and T's in there. I'm going to try to remember that for later. Thank you. Substitutionary. Uh, uh, offering was in the Garden of Eden, right? We know that. We're going to read it a little bit, though. Genesis two fifteen says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And then we know what happened. They disobeyed. In Genesis 3, 7, it says this, And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So they disobeyed, 
And although they did not realize what happened, because God said, if you sin, you will surely die, they may not have realized what happened immediately. They immediately died spiritually. And how do we know that? It's because they began to hide from God. So they were dead spiritually. Now there's a division. And they see God as their enemy. And their flesh began the dying process. When would that become so very real to them? Their two sons. So we see that their solution was to hide their nakedness or sin from God with fig leaves. God's solution was to expose their sin and extend grace by making a blood sacrifice on their behalf. It's always, our first response is always to hide our sin. Always. It's unnatural for us to say, I think I'm going to expose my sin. It's always humanity's answer to hide from God. God made a sacrifice. The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So the point is, rather than exacting the judgment Adam and Eve deserved, which would have meant they would be eternally separated from God, God sacrificed an animal. I wonder if that was a lamb. We don't know. He sacrificed an animal in their place to cover their sin. So the first story is Adam and Eve. Substitutionary. Sacrifice. Next familiar example we have is in Genesis 22, 1 through 8. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, exclamation point, by the way, behind that. God, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Now, the story continues, and I'm assuming most of you know that story. Within, in Abraham's obedience to the point of being willing to sacrifice his son, Isaac willingly relinquishes to the authority of his father. Uh, Isaac was not a two-year-old or a three-year-old. Some people believe he was in his teens, relinquished to the authority of his father, and Abraham relinquished to the authority of his father. 
And Isaac is on the altar, and the story says this, that he raised the knife. And suddenly the angel said, don't do it. Wait. I hate the word wait, because I don't like to wait for anything, but I would have, I would have enjoyed that word right there. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, Jehovah-Jireh. Jehovah-Jireh. Any of you familiar with Jehovah-Jireh, provider? Mm Mm-hmm. And it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. God provided a substitute for the substitute. Out of His grace and His mercy. Look in verse 15. I don't have it on the scripture sheet for you. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. He said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. I get that. By myself I have sworn. There is no one that God can swear by because there's no one more powerful than God. So he says, By myself I have sworn. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm keeping my word. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, which he would do the same, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. So what we see here is another, uh, that word, um, a substitute. And what was the benefit of this one? Israel was truly born. And they are now truly God's people because of what Abraham did. It should teach us something about what we do. You know, one of my greatest anxieties is that my family will be punished for my sin. How about you guys? Am I the only one that sins? See, most men, if they know Jesus, the fear we have is that through our disobedience, our family will suffer. One final story. This is called Blood of the Covenant. So we have Adam and Eve, substitutionary. We might have to nod if I get that right, okay? Substitutionary, sacrifice, By God sacrificing an animal, putting the hides on them. And then we have Abraham and Isaac's substitutionary sacrifice of the substitute. And out of that, out of that obedience, the the people of God are truly born. Covenant agreement. Now, there's another covenant agreement that happens with them. And this is another familiar story. The next event obviously follows a crossing of the Red Sea. When we begin to read this, Exodus 24, 1 through 8. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, and Adab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. Call them rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, we know the rest of the story, right? 
We're going to go on here. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Another blood sacrifice. Then he took the book of the covenant, the words of God, which we would call the law of Moses, which includes the Ten Commandments. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And in verse eight, it says this. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So the law was sealed with the blood of a substitutionary sacrifice. Many of them. Thank you. Many of them. And the way it was finally sealed is Moses took the blood and scattered it on the people. So God immediately sacrificed a substitute offering for Adam and Eve that would cover their sin until the true permanent substitutionary sacrifice, Jesus Christ, arrived and fulfilled his mission. Then he did the same for the nation of Israel in Genesis and then in Exodus. So what's the point? Well, the point is that the ceremonial laws that God placed in the law, the covenant, concerning celebrating what God had done for them while in Egypt, were prophecies that pointed directly to the man who reclined at the table with them in that upper room. And they were going to miss it. They would get it later, but not that night. They had become so familiar and comfortable with the ceremonial laws, even though some of them were extremely oppressive. And these ceremonies that celebrated the victories of the past, they were so comfortable with the laws that they failed to recognize the fulfillment of the law. They failed to recognize Jesus as Messiah. He was a rabbi. He was a great rabbi, by the way, since he wrote the law. Can you relate to this? Here's a silly illustration. I'm just I'm just warning you this is silly, okay? Waiting in line at Cedar Point is trying. Most people go to Cedar Point for the thrill of roller coasters or other rides, and everything's great until you get in line and there's a 1 or a 2 hour line. People get really grumpy in those lines. And I'm sorry. (laughs) 
Well, we were in line for this one roller coaster. It's been two or three years ago. I've used this example in the past, but... And we're under this roof, and we're all kind of crowded in the queue line, and we're all just... And then you lean on the bar, and some kid gets on the bar, stay off the bars! And we're sweaty. And someone had a brilliant idea. They took a $2 beach ball, blew it up, and threw it into the crowd. Everybody... We were batting that beach ball all over the place. Everybody started laughing. Everybody was having a good time. As a matter of fact, we were having such a great time. Occasionally, there were these great gaps in the line that would take you to the ramp to get on the coaster. And somebody would go, hey, 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 hey. And then when we would all shuffle around, we'd start batting the beach ball around again. So the real thrill was waiting for us at the top of the ramp. The reason we got in line was at the top of the ramp. But occasionally we even forgot what line we were in because we were having such a good time with this $2 beach ball. I think sometimes this can define our churches. We can become so familiar and comfortable with the shadow of what is to come, religion and tradition, we, do not, we no longer long to know Christ more. We no longer pray. We no longer study. We no longer serve. And more importantly, we no longer witness to our family and friends because we forget why we're in line. There's a little bit of a dilemma in the Western church, probably other churches. And I'm not saying there's a right or a wrong, but Kim and I have been members of churches that had you so busy you couldn't get home enough to eat. But it was always worth going. It was always good. And then we've been in other churches that had so little to do that we found ourselves just kind of being lethargic. You know, we have to be careful that church is not the reason we go to church. The reason we go to church is to fellowship with the saints and to praise God as a family and to learn as a family. Is it possible that the reason we become bored in our faith is because God knows we have not prepared ourselves so that we can handle a living faith. So here's a question. What is living faith? Living faith is a faith that is grounded in Jesus, not our past glory days or our past failures or victories or remembering our younger and healthier bodies, nor is it about what God might do in the future. Living faith is not grounded in what we can't do. Living faith is grounded in sacrifice and obedience and pressing on hour after hour and day after day as we walk on this journey together. Living faith recognizes the holiness of God and recognizes the sacrifice of God. And if that does not excite us, we don't have it. 
And I know, sometimes I'm not as excited as I should be. I know. So now we find ourselves in Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 30. This will be quick, and then we will share in the Lord's table together. Luke twenty-two fourteen says this, And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. Now, I believe the hour he's mentioning here is not necessarily the hour when the Son of God knew this, although he did know that. I believe what they're talking about here is the hour came for the evening to begin. There's afternoon and then the hour for the evening when the Passover would begin, the Passover that everyone would be celebrating. And that's important. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. Verse 15, And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. We have already covered the significance of this scripture in detail, so I will not repeat it today. This brings us to verse 16 and a striking statement that should have alerted them to the fact that this Passover celebration was indeed going to be different. Now remember, Luke's not recording these things in chronological order here. So you can't go by when it's spoken as to when it may have been spoken. We're going to deal with that much more next week. But he says this, It's the last one I will eat until we all eat together in the kingdom of God. Now, the ESV says, I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He later says about the second cup, what is much more, sounds much more familiar to you from the message here. So what Jesus is saying here is, is I have this cup. There's four cups. I have this cup. And I tell you, I will, not, I will not do this again with you until the kingdom of God comes. And he's already given other fairly direct statements And then verse 17, it says, And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. Why? For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Second time he said it. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant. Okay, look at that scripture right now. This cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant. What's the next word? In my blood. In my blood. Not of my blood. In my blood. This cup that is poured out for you is the new law, the new blood covenant that is found in my blood. This blood is so precious. So we learned that they were table, and as Christ takes one of the four cups, Of wine, he proclaims that this will be the last Passover meal we will eat together for a while. Then he took the bread and broke it and passed it to them and picked up the second cup and declared the same thing. 
And after they had eaten the bread, they drank another cup of wine, at which point Jesus makes the following statement. This cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. Hours and hours spent together in conversation. And Jesus is teaching and teaching and teaching. And what he knows is, I am going away. This is a monumental statement Jesus is proclaiming to 12 men, one of whom Satan will soon possess, by the way, that he is the new covenant. They have spent all of their lives celebrating the Passover through the law that was given to them from Mount Sinai with tradition and ceremony. And Jesus is saying, you don't, he didn't say it this way. I know you're not going to get this right now. But I am the new covenant. See, they should have understood that word covenant. He is replacing the old covenant. The covenant of the law. The covenant that requires a Passover to be observed. The covenant that ultimately required him to be tortured and crucified. The covenant that required a, a substu- <laughs> sub- substitutionary smile sacrifice of an unblemished lamb to take the place of human blood. Jesus is proclaiming that he is a fulfillment of the covenant of the law. He is the substitutionary sacrifice for the sin of all who come to him, who deny themselves and receive him. Jesus was saying, I am, just like God the Father said, I am. I am the new and final Passover. Did they fully understand this? No, but they they will. They will. A good question might be, do we fully understand this? I believe that perhaps we understand the words and maybe even the gravity of what Jesus was saying. I also believe that the depth of the price Jesus paid for the cleansing of our sin is woefully misunderstood. Jesus took upon himself the sin and the wrath of God. The Last Supper of the Lord's Table, of which we partake of this morning, was intended to be a memorial. Not of the elements or the event, but of the victory Christ won for us over sin to the glory of His Father. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are not remembering the Passover out of Egypt. We are remembering the Passover that occurred on the cross. We do not hold that the cup and the bread of which we will eat and drink this morning is anything other than a testimony of the love of God expressed through the obedience of Jesus Christ. That's what we're celebrating. Philippians 2.8 says this, closing with this, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In Genesis 
When Adam and Eve sinned and they tried to hide themselves, God pursued them. They did not pursue God. God pursues them. No one pursues God today. God is pursuing them. We do not have a seeker church. We have a church where God seeks sinners. We don't know to seek God. And what we do know, we run from until God calls us. So we're going to um, share the elements today. Men, if you'll come forward, please. Now, I think, I'm not sure if Rich is going to share this, but I'll just share it real quickly just in case, and that is you're all welcome to participate in communion with us. If you had not yet made a decision for the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says you should not participate with us in this. Uh, But you can receive Christ at any moment. Twenty-six. There we go. Paul is telling the Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'm going to read that verse again, 26. Why do we do this? For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim or announce or state publicly the Lord's death until he comes. So in a moment, we're going to be proclaiming something. We're going to be stating something. Who are we saying it to? Believers, each other. The reason for that is we sometimes take things for granted. And when we go through communion, and some of us have been through a lot of communions, we take it for granted. We don't realize the importance, but we're supposed to be proclaiming his death. Seems like a strange thing to celebrate, isn't it? But in celebrating his death, we are remembering things that Tom just mentioned a couple of minutes ago, that he paid a price that we could not pay. That he loved us in a way that we can never return the love to him. That he gave us a gift that only he could give because he died for us. 
And not because we were somebody great or somebody better than somebody else, but because He chose to love us. So proclaim to me, we're procla- we are proclaiming, boy, I have the same problem Tom had. We are proclaiming to each other the death of Christ and what that means. Gentlemen, if you'd pass out the bread. As we prepare to take the cup, I ask you to consider um, that as we proclaim his death in communion between us, that we would also do that this year. We take the challenge to do that outside of these walls. Father, thank you so very, very much for your love and grace. May you give us the courage the boldness to proclaim your death out beyond the walls to those who need you. And Jesus said, this is the cup of my new covenant, my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Partake. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice, your willing sacrifice. We thank you, God, for sending your Son. We thank you, God, that you are holy and righteous and just. And we are careful to give you all the praise and the glory for us. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. And everyone said, amen. Blessings.